Well, hello there. It's Tuesday and you know what that means. Richard Tubb here at home in the studio garage in Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the northeast of England. And it's time for Tub Talk Live. Now, this is the live show where I speak with the smartest, most successful people in the managed service provider business, giving you the opportunity to learn from their tips, techniques, and advice to help you to grow your IT business. Now, as always, we are very interactive. The clue is in the title of the show here. So if you are joining us live via LinkedIn, via Facebook, via Twitter, via YouTube, or anywhere else, let us know in the chat, in the comments right away where you're joining us from so we can give you a shout out. And if you have any questions or comments for our guest today, fire them over in the comments. I will make sure to pause very regularly to ask your questions and we're monitoring all social media channels for your feedback and questions so I can pass them on to our guest today. Without further ado, on to the main event today and I am very excited to be joined by our guest, Chloe Cameron. Now, Chloe is the Chief People Officer EMEA at PAX 8. Chloe started out in our industry working at Microsoft and Vodafone before joining Wirehive, where she rose to be managing partner and then took on the people function. And the people function there building a values-driven culture within any business. Now, Wirehive were acquired by PAX 8 in January 2021. And Chloe describes her current role at PAX 8 as nothing short of enabling people to do the best work of their lives at the business. Chloe, welcome to Tub Talk Live. How are you doing today? Hi, Richard. Lovely to be here today. A little bit uh, Britishly embarrassed by such a lovely introduction. Had so much excitement in the run-up to this show. You are a guest that people are really looking forward to hearing from today. I guess to start out with, I know who Pax8 is. I guess many people in our audience will. But for those people who have not come across Pax8 before, who are Pax8 and what do you do as a business? Well, I would describe Pax8 as the creators of the world-leading marketplace for technology professionals to buy cloud products. Think of us as the app store for your business. I love it. And now tell us more about your role at Pax8 there. So Chief People Officer, EMEA. What is a Chief People Officer? Uh, a Chief People Officer is someone who looks after the people organization functionally in the business. So in our case, that is talent, uh, people operations and learning and development. Um, the purpose of my role really is to kind of drive the strategy behind people and culture and create an environment where the amazingly talented and skilled people at Pax8 can utilize all of their, um, I guess, drive, determination, brains to best serve our partners. I love it. So people often talk about culture, don't they, in business? Uh, but beyond it being this buzzword uh, that, that people just sort of throw out there, how would you actually describe what culture is and, and what culture would you suggest that you've helped to cultivate at Pax8? Uh, the most powerful description for culture that I've come across is it is the lowest form of behaviour leaders will tolerate. Right. That is ultimately what makes up a business's culture. Um, it is some, both something that is magical and organic but it does need lots of careful attention. I like to think of it as a garden, right? A wildflower meadow is beautiful, but you could just as easily get a beautiful wildflower meadow as a tumble of thorns. If you want flowers and you want something beautiful and productive and harmonious, um, the skills of the gardener are needed in it. Um, otherwise, you don't quite know what you're going to get. Yeah. So what culture would you say you've cultivated or helped to cultivate at Pax8? Um, at Pax8, we are massive believers, and this comes all the way from our global CEO, John Street, in servant leadership. Um, and that is probably another buzzword. <laughs> uh, we may <laughs> fill a bingo card with our conversation today if we're not careful. Um, but the whole principle of servant leadership is that the role of a leader is not their own self-glory or aggrandizement. It is removing roadblocks and creating the right conditions for everyone else to be successful. Um, and that is, you know, so that's putting your team first and giving them 
the skills and resources um, and the support that they need to um, do their best work every day. Yeah, I'm going to give a shout out. We are live today. So if you are joining us on any of the uh, channels, YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, let us know where you're joining from today. We've got so many people joining us from all over the world. Uh, Shout out to uh, Chris Tate, who's an MSP channel leader. Uh, Chris, we've had on the show before. Really good to see you back here. Uh, We've got Alliance Best Practices, Mike Nevin from Warwick uh, says, hi, looking forward to the show. We've got Jorgen Lindblom from Sweden uh, says, hello, Richard and Chloe. Uh, We've got lots of people, Chloe, joining us from all over the world, MSPs, vendors, everybody within the channel space. I want to pick up on culture a little bit more uh, before we move on. And that for anybody who's watching live today or listening to the replay who may own a business, how do you go about cultivating a culture within the business? You've talked about PAXA. You've talked about what it stands for. uh, But how would anybody who runs a business go about cultivating the business that they want? From my experience, and this was something I think we did really well at Wirehive, is you have to start by defining your core values as a business. Um, And I think when you're an entrepreneur and you run your own business, it's often very easy to conflate your personal values with your business values. The one piece of advice I would give anyone thinking about going down a values route is make this a collaborative exercise. Some people involve the whole company, depending on size, or maybe your core leadership team, maybe with some non-exec advisors. Um, But go through the process of really defining the values for your company. Less is more. Uh, Three to five is normally um, the advice at Pax8 we have for. Um, But as well as defining the values, which can be quite abstract statements, um, what we found was really important to really bring this to life was the defining the behaviors that went with the values. So you could give people really concrete guidance and examples of what types of behavior you were looking for. And the second part, after you go through that exercise and you, in order to socialize them properly in your organization, you have to be prepared to hire against them. So mm-hmm. they need to be in every interview. Um, you need to check every candidate that walks through the door. You should only be promoting people who can live up to those values. So we have a rule, which is no talented jerks. Um, and <laughs> last one, uh, no means least, and this is the hard one, you've got to be prepared to fire against them as well. So, right. you know, the classic example is if you have like the best performing salesperson but they are arrogant and they alienate everyone and they're not a team player. You have to think about the cultural cost of having someone like that in your business and how much damage it does. And, and back to my earlier point that culture is the worst form of behavior a leader will tolerate. It's, it's that sort of thing that we're talking about. That is fascinating to me, especially that concept of no talented jerks. That's I've heard it put in slightly uh, different terms to that before, but I've never yeah, heard yeah, it there is a much more colourful version. <laughs> but I'm aware so that we are pre watershed, so. <laughs> You know, I speak to so many uh, MSPs who have got uh, uh, perhaps perhaps I'm over egging it there. Not so many MSPs. I've spoken to a number of MSPs and IT businesses in the past who have got like a senior technician or a salesperson or somebody within the business that they describe as a rock star. But that connotation, Chloe, I don't know if you will uh, empathize with this, the connotation isn't all about, oh, yeah, they're absolutely awesome. And occasionally, you know, there's a couple of things. When they say a rock star, what they're essentially saying is like diva-like attitude. You know, they're incredible at what they do, uh, but they, the re- they bring the rest of the team down. So for anybody watching today who's perhaps thinking, yeah, I've got somebody in the team like that, how would they go about actually, you know, um, raising the the standards of the culture and saying, right, this is not a good fit for us? That's a really great question. It is one of the, the, the toughest things. I think if you've done the values work and define them, a really core cool part of the process of socialising is spending a lot of time with your team, like announcing and explaining, one, why you've done this exercise and what they actually mean. Um If you have a management team or a management structure underneath you, it's really important all your people managers are bought in and they understand how to coach against these values. Um, They should be discussed frequently, um, one-to-ones, 
I would recommend including them in sections in your performance review. So, for example, at PAX 8, there's a whole section every quarterly review, which is um, give examples of how you've lived our values. And we rate people around how proficient they are in um, not just following the values, but how can they inspire other people to live our values? Um, it's it's a kind of work of socialization. And that's why the behaviors are so important, because there's one thing, um, you know, one of our core values at PAX is innovate, for example. It's quite hard to have a conversation with someone who's quite a good performer, but perhaps might have some behaviors that aren't quite hitting your values, say, you're not very innovative. <laughs> That's quite a broad, abstract concept. It means different things to different peoples. But if you have a set of uh, behaviors there that you can point to, you know, and you can say, hey, when we had that team meeting and we were all brainstorming, I noticed you were sat with very close body language. And not only did you not contribute, but you really lowered the mood and stopped other people contributing. That meant we weren't very innovative in that session. That gives you the basis for a much more concrete and frankly, constructive conversation to have with someone. Um, the other piece of advice I would give um, is that look for three examples. It's really easy for someone, because it's naturally, if you get bad feedback, people can get quite defensive quite quickly. Yeah. Um, and so people may very well be able to um, explain away or, you know, you know, you know, compelling reasons, um, you know, some, you know, car didn't start that morning for why they were short with someone or didn't really live up to the values. And, you know, and, that, and that's not the case. You know, we don't expect everyone to be able to, you know, live the values in every single moment, right? We're all human. <laughs> that's not what we're trying to create. Sure. But um, it's, if you come with three examples, normally by the time you get to number three, they've run out of reasons for why, it's okay for them not to live up to those values. Yeah. Do you have any advice for, for for business owners who have perhaps heard what you've just said there and said, oh yeah, three, but they've come across one specific incident and they know that there's been dozens of other things that have happened in the past, but they've not recorded them or they can't bring them to mind. Does that make sense, Chloe? How, oh, you know, absolutely. How, how would somebody go across if they can't remember the specific incidents before? I think um, the point you raise is really interesting, Richard, because what you're talking about there is gut. And, you know, mm -hmm. the gut is the summation of all of our experience and we should listen to it. Um, but equally, you have to treat people fairly. Um, so sometimes what I would say is, in my experience, and your mileage may vary, mm -hmm. it is better to have a difficult conversation as soon as possible. Uh, a lot of us very naturally, it's a very human thing, put off having difficult conversations because we fear the reaction of the person we're going to speak to. It's not so much the, the, the topic, but what, what we fear, we play out the worst case scenario in our mind of like, they're going to explode or they're going to cry or, oh my gosh, they're going to have a really distressing emotional reaction, which I, as the person delivering this, will have to absorb. That, and that's quite difficult. Um, so as a general rule, throughout my experience of, of working with people, I've always regretted it when I have delayed having the difficult conversation rather than when I've stepped forward. It doesn't mean it's going to be comfortable or easy. It may be clunky. It may not be very smooth. Um, but if you are going into that conversation with positive intent, uh, with a fairly open mind, and if you are looking to have that conversation to course correct someone's behavior rather than, you know, publicly berate them or make them feel bad, um, if you've got the right kind of person, they're just a little bit off course, it should start a good dialogue. And I guess what I'd also advise is don't worry about solving it in one go. This is this is hard work, especially if you've let a few things slide or perhaps you've been really busy building the business or you've got a big new client that you've all worked really hard to win and you've been onboarding them. And, you know, suddenly a few months have gone past, you look around, and you see that suddenly there's a load of weeds in the flower bed to go back to our gardening metaphor, um, you know, it's that classic, uh, the best day to start was yesterday. The next best day is today. Yeah. Can I put you on the spot, Chloe? If we were to role play this a little bit and I was somebody yeah. that you were working with at a business yeah. and perhaps I've got 
little bit of a rock star attitude, a little bit diva-ish, and perhaps my performance in areas has not been as great as you want. How would you broach that conversation with me? What would the what would your opening part of the conversation be if you sat me down and said, Richard, we need to talk? Yeah, of course. Um, well, <laughs> can't just put me on the spot. What I would say is if I was going to have that conversation with you, before we even sat down, I would prepare. And that's, that's really important. Um, and... A model I often use um, is called the feel-do-know model when you need to have a difficult conversation with someone. Um, Because these are tough, right? And it's at the end of the day, you're speaking to people and people have feelings. Um, And so I model, I prepare in advance, how do I want you to feel at the end of the conversation? What do I want you to do on the back of this conversation we're having? Because the reason we have a conversation is I would like something to change. So being really clear about what change I would like to see. And what do I need you to know in order to go um, forward um, and be able to do the thing I would like you to do and feel how I would like you to feel at the the back of the conversation? And, you know, I said it's not to be manipulative, but it is just a case of going in prepared, um, you know, rather than just blundering in and seeing where the conversation takes you. Yeah, um, that's it. So, so there's there's probably a lesson there, isn't there, for any manager who feels as though, uh, you know, oh, this is the straw that broke the camel's back. I'm going to tackle them on this immediately. Yes. Perhaps not. I mean, just just like we always say, never email angry. <laughs> um, yeah. n- never, never go, you know, unless someone is doing something that you need to like physically intervene at the time to stop something happening. Uh, my advice is all, all, even just give yourself 15 minutes, right? Take a breath think about it, jot a few things down just to approach this because um, I appreciate with the straw that breaks the camera back, then that may compel you to action, but you've got to remember you want that action to be effective. Because um, if you go in angry, it's just about really making you feel better rather than resolving the situation. Yeah, I, I will say as being a former employer myself as well, what you said about um, deferring or delaying those difficult conversations really strikes a chord because we all hope that it will go away. But that's part of management, isn't it? Sort yeah. of tackling those issues. And I will also say that in uh, in my experience, whenever I've tackled one of those difficult situations, and perhaps it's uh, it's ended with that person having to leave the organisation, um, it, in nearly every case, in fact, I can say in almost every case, uh, I've spoken to the rest of the team and they've come up to me and said, what took you so long? <laughs> so they they knew well ahead that I did that it was untenable and it couldn't continue there. So yes. an interesting one. I, I would also suggest as well for MSPs watching and listening today that if you've got any clients who behave in that way, that it's counterproductive with your culture, that's probably a similar situation, isn't it, Chloe? Absolutely. Um, and I talk a lot about values. The the other key thing around building a great culture and attracting great talent is to be really clear on what your purpose is as a business and help people understand how that can align to their own personal purpose and value system. Um, yeah. That I think after the pandemic, and maybe we'll come on to the great resignation at some point, but everyone's having a bit of a fap about (laughs) it's going back to work. Is everyone resigning? Like the market right now is white hot in terms of recruitment. I'm sure a lot of people listening, you know, talent is probably on their top three list of things that keep them awake at night, retaining it, attracting it. Um, And my observation is that I think what connects all of these big shifts and perhaps what people are looking for, whether they want to come back to the office, whether they want hybrid working, they want to go full-time remote. What all people seem to want is a connection and they want to connect with the company they're working for and with their colleagues. And I think our challenge as people leaders is how do we meet them where they are and foster that connection? Because in the before times, we would foster that connection in an office, probably, unless we were running one of those early adopter distributed teams, in which case we would run it all online. Now the challenge is more complex. It's a mixed environment. Um, we did a survey at Pax8 in the UK at the end of last year, where I asked everyone what they wanted from the future of work and coming back after COVID. And I, for the first time in my career, I presented a pie chart that was in four beautiful quarters. 
we had equal chunks of the population who wanted very different things. Um, mm. And you've got to respect that. And our job is to find a way of how we can bring those things together to create a community. Yeah. It's much more challenging than before, but at the end of the day, people want connection, they want community, they want purpose in their work. Yeah, we will dig into that as we go forward. We are live and in Technicolor today. So if you are joining us live and you've got any questions on PAX 8, on people, on culture, on managed services, on business growth, uh, for our guest today, Chloe Cameron, please let us know in the comments and I will pause to ask those questions live. But Chloe, I want to dig into your uh, background really a little bit and what brought you to where we are today. You've sat in so many different roles in the industry. I alluded to that earlier. You've been a marketing director. You've been a managing partner. You've been a head of operations. Is there any key skill that you would say that you've picked up in these varied roles that you, you are using each and every day today? That's a great question, Richard. Um, empathy is probably mm. the key one. Um, whether that's in the marketing seat where you absolutely need to have empathy for your target customer and understand the world through their lens and the problems they face every day and their agenda, not your agenda. Um, in running, you know, as managing partner of Hive, um, we were really tight 30-person business, really long tenure. We pushed ourselves really hard to innovate. So, that empathy to help people manage change was really key. Um, and then, yeah, obviously, as chief people officer and even as head of operations, right, you know, people think operations is tooling and systems and efficiencies. Um, for some people, that that may be. But for me, operations is all about flow. It is how you connect these very talented humans that you have hired and you deploy the tools and systems you've developed to make things consistent and of a good quality and let that genius flow through the organization out to the partners to best serve them. Um, mm. And so understanding what people need, how they work, just having that empathy is probably the biggest skill um, I think that I use universally. Yeah, very interesting. Now, when we put together the synopsis, the title for today's uh, conversation, and one of the topics that that got so much interest was, you know, breaking the barrier, breaking down the walls for women in IT. So it's clear for anybody watching or listening, you know, you're a wonderful example of uh, a, a woman in, in in the technology industry who's gone on to do incredible work, inspiring other people, but. What would you say, you know, the IT industry could probably be described as a predominantly male environment? I think that's fair to say. How have you found it to be a powerful woman in this IT industry? Uh, I'm not sure I'd ever describe myself as powerful, but I do recognise <laughs> the position I find myself in. I think that's really important when you're a woman or any, a representative of any minority group. I, You know, if you succeed to a certain level, don't take for granted the seat you've managed to gain as uncomfortable as the words may make you feel um yeah. i think this is an industry that i really love i wouldn't have stayed here for so long if i didn't really love it and but there is an industry that does still have its problems in terms of diversity equity and inclusion so let's not brush that under the carpet um i thought long and hard about why is it this way? And I, th I think there's, there's two things I would say. Firstly, I think there is a misconception that you need to be technical to work in this industry. And obviously, I think most of us here have seen the stats around the drop-off rate of girls in STEM subjects once you get to secondary school. It's terrifying once you get to university, let alone the completion rate of women in computer science degrees. Um, so I think there's perhaps a bit of an image problem and misconception that um, the IT industry is about technology, when actually it's not it's about people, it's about service, it's about solving your customer's problem. Technology just happens to be the tool we use in this industry to do that. Um, the second thing I'd say is I think the problems of the tech industry are actually much more universal. Um, perhaps they're slightly more higher profile. 
due to the way this industry is beginning to get financed. And there's some, you know, all the unicorns come out of the tech space. There's been some real horror stories from the likes of Uber um, around their treatment of female engineers. Um, You know, I think we've all seen what happens when it's growth for growth's sake, you know, and that doesn't just damage women, that damages all people as well. Um, And when I speak to people about, you know, women in tech and diversity and equity, I always start from the point of view of like, patriarchy hurts men too, because the dominant stereotype in patriarchy does not fit all men, just as it disadvantages women. And actually, stereotypes are harmful, whether they're in your favour or not. Mm. Now, if you were approached by, let's say, a female friend or a friend who has got a daughter that's interested in going into the tech industry in IT, what advice, Chloe, would you give to them on how to to navigate the waters and be successful? Um, I think the first thing I would say is definitely go for it. This is a wonderful Mm. industry. I think it represents a huge opportunity for women in this industry because of the growth I think there's huge opportunities for social mobility for people entering this industry. I think if you just look at the MSP community, how many self-made entrepreneurs do you see in this community? These people, you know, this community generates so many jobs in this country and globally as well. Um, So I I would actively encourage women to step into the technology, not just because it's wonderful and it's fulfilling, but also pragmatically it is a growth area. At the moment, it feels pretty recession-proof. You know, this is a great place to be. In terms of how to succeed, I would, the one piece of advice I would give is say yes and then figure out how later. There is a wealth of opportunity in this industry. And often, and we see, this is when I say, I think the problems of the tech industry are perhaps a little bit more universal. We know from all of the studies that women are more reticent to put themselves forward if they don't know exactly how to do something yet. Um, I think the tech industry could do a little bit better. There is some hangovers from what I call the programmer culture around you either get it perfectly right and are a god and know everything or you get one thing wrong and you are nothing (laughs) um i think if we can be more gracious about failure and actually showcase that failure is a huge part of the technical development process it's how we figure things out it's how we innovate and break barriers um i think you know that giving women that advice to say yes and figure out how would be uh, would be easier for women to take that on board. Yeah, I, I've been very privileged over the past few months. We The, the whole of the last season of Tub Talk, uh, I interviewed some amazing women in tech and we did a whole season speaking to these ladies. And there was a common theme throughout. You know, they all got into the industry because they enjoy helping people. But they actually all suggested they loved the pace of change and innovation mm-hmm. that was there as well. They said, you know, no two, uh, no two years in the industry were ever the same. Everything was moving so quickly. So um, I'm intrigued, Chloe, we've got a lot of uh we've got a big audience today watching of uh, vendors of msp it consultants lots of people from across the industry i'm speaking specifically now to you about msp owners if you were to give any advice to any managed service provider owner or it business owner and how they can make their business more uh, attractive more enticing for for girls and women to work within their business what could they do I think one of the biggest things, and this is the classic chicken and egg problem, it's really hard to attract women or any uh, group that is underrepresented if you don't have some representation already. When people walk through the door of your office, they will look around. And the question they will ask themselves just as a human being is, am I safe? Are there people like me here? And if you step into an office and you look around and you cannot see anyone who looks like you, it's going to be a tough sell to get someone to come and work for your business. Um, So that's the first thing I would always recommend. um, 
showcasing female talent on your website, include them in peer interviews. You know, if you do cultural interviews, it doesn't have to be a people manager, you know, bring in the people who best represent your values and a great representative of your company and, and go out of your way. If you are struggling to hire women, perhaps especially in underrepresented departments in your team, particularly maybe in technical teams, if there is a woman that make sure she's involved in the interview process, it's not tokenistic. It's not inauthentic. We want to understand, you know, what your commitment is to inclusion and what work you're doing. And I think be honest and have the conversation. Um, the other thing I'd say as well is um, really look at your um, interview process, your recruitment process. Um, one of the lovely piece of feedback I got from our new graduate sales class when I asked them, what, why did you come and work in tech? What's your experience as, as, as women? Um, is uh, Annie, one of our CGSs, said to me, I looked at lots of different ads for technology companies and I was really put off by how they were written. PAX 8's ad was the only one that made me feel like this is a place I would want to be. So it starts with the advert. It starts with the language you use, how you present yourselves, how you talk about the opportunity. Um, and every touch point in that journey, you can make a difference in terms of who you attract. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And again, it comes back to what you were talking about. The culture of the business is, I think it's not just internal. You've got to project that culture externally to clients, to potential new hires and everything else as well. So uh, thank you for, for sharing that. I want to give a shout out as well to, uh, it was International Women's Day a couple of weeks ago. And to celebrate it, we put together an ebook uh, featuring interviews with so many of the amazing women in tech that I've had the privilege to, to interview on uh, this show. Uh, so you can go to tub.co forward slash women in tech, grab that free ebook there and uh, see uh, the advice from so many other incredible women like uh, Chloe. You have got quite the fan club, uh, I should say, Chloe. I'll leave you to go and check out social media afterwards with all the kind words that, that people are sharing for you. We are live today. If you've got any comments, any feedback, any questions about business growth, about PAX8, about the managed service industry, about women in tech, please let us know and we'll pause often. Got a few questions that come in uh, here. We've got, uh, so Mike asks on LinkedIn, uh, do you feel that women are less assertive than men? And I can see there's a slight smile there from you, Chloe. I suspect this is a question that's been asked before. I've heard this before, so I've got my preference, my feedback on it, but I'm intrigued. How would you answer to Mike who says, are women less assertive than men? I think if we're speaking in broad strokes, noting that uh, women's experience vary based on, you know, their educational background, their social class, their colour, their sexuality. You know, there's a lot of intersectionality here we have to bring into the mix when we talk about women. Um, women are generally less assertive. But why? That's the more interesting question. Um, and from what I have observed and read, it's because that's how we're socialised from when we are small. Um, you know, you walk into any nursery school in this country and you look around, and even if the child's been raised by very conscientious parents, you will see a lot of pink on the girls and dolls, and you will see a lot of tracksuit bottoms, poor patrol, and rough and tumble from the boys. And this notion that women should be more nurturing and should put their needs behind other people's is socialised from a very early age. Um, you know, you look at the toys they play with, how they are cautioned from rough and tumble games or running up trees. Um, I was actually um, reading a Harvest Business Review article this morning, back from 2014. It just came off my feet and I thought it was really interesting because I knew that we were going to have this conversation today, Richard. And it was, uh, why don't women negotiate? Why don't women negotiate their pay more? And what this article discovered from actual studies that were done with control groups is that the social cost to women for negotiating is significantly higher than it is for men. And when I say social cost, what I mean is that if a woman goes to negotiate her salary, she unless she does it very skillfully, she is she may well get the raise, but it 
permanently warps people's perception of her as not a team player in a way it does not for a man. Um, and it was very interesting. The best way this research found women could do, uh, um, kind of fix this is interestingly, people love it when women advocate for others. That just seems very natural. That's quite nurturing. How supportive. Um, but actually then to translate that, to advocate for ourselves in terms of pay equity, um, what the article stated is they refer to the, the method Cheryl Sandberg identified in her book, Lean In, when she negotiated to work at Facebook. And you have to, the, so the article says, you have to state and put yourself in the shoes and legitimize your right to negotiate in the eyes of the person you're doing it with. Now, um, the idealist in me goes, oh, for goodness sake, it should be equal. However, as the article posits, the pragmatist says, hey, what works, works, right? And get your seat at the table and get the equity you deserve. Um, so, sorry, that was a very long answer, but um, I think women have been social. And I think it's a really interesting topic because we talk about break the bias. And I think that was a really apt topic for International Women's Day because it is this tension between thinking about how we treat people and treating people equitably. Um, and no one wants tokenism. However, you equally do women or other underrepresented groups a disservice if you do not acknowledge and try and think about the structural disadvantages they have. So saying, oh, my company is a level playing field. My office door is always open. Anyone can negotiate for a raise. That assumes that everyone feels equally confident to be able to do that. So actually, in order to undo some of this uh, kind of gender imbalance in the pay scales, we may need to think about levelling the playing field from people's ability to ask before we even think about changing the pay. Yeah, makes sense. And, and to the point of what works, works, we've got some really interesting feedback from a number of people, but Pascal Fintoni, who was a, a prior guest on the show, I love how previous guests of the show come back and are in the audience and give feedback. So thank you, Pascal. Pascal said, uh, to your point earlier about say yes, uh, uh, the advice for ladies to say yes and figure it out later. He says, in his experience, that's the approach of the vast majority of successful entrepreneurs, inventors, and pioneers. So again, the advice that you've given there, Chloe, I think is applicable to everybody, not just uh, uh, women in tech. So thank you for, for that, Pascal. We've got a lot of questions about something you alluded to earlier about the almost the hybrid working environment that we've got now, you know, the mixture between offices and remote work and things like that. Um, so we've got a question, uh, let's have a look. Could Chloe share some of her ideas and suggestions about managing a hybrid work team and to avoid specifically a them and us or an on-site versus off-site? Fascinating question. How would you answer that? It's a really great question and something I spend a lot of time thinking about, as do many of my other colleagues in the operational functions at Pax8 and on the leadership team. Um, the way we have done it so far, and I'm sure we've got room for improvement, but we always try and make sure that we have a clear mix of sort of social events and meeting options. We also worked really hard to define what meetings work in what format. So things that are quite broadcasty or informational um, or regular, uh, maybe operational, quite tactical, we have a rule that it is remote first which means that even if you're in the office, you should ideally join from your, you know, from your laptop on a Teams call. That helps kind of create that equity. But what we also did at that time was we thought, as we are able to come back to the office, what are the kind of key touchstones in our culture, in our calendar, that we think are really important to have in person? And then we actually put more effort and more preparation and more notice behind those events and encourage people to come and attend. We'll, you know, 
maybe we'll have a big kickoff and we'll attach a social around it afterwards. We have a wonderful culture club who organize events and that is made up of people across the organization, remote workers, hybrid workers, full-time office workers. And so rather than us imposing down on what the social calendar is going to be and what we're going to do, it all comes from the team. Um, So they feel really invested and they can represent all different perspectives on the type of um, events we do. The other thing I would say, and this is something that we need to be really cautious about, especially if we think about um, some of the gains we've made during the pandemic for um, underrepresented groups. Um, it used to be that you built your social capital by being in the office. You were seen to be there. Yeah. And while we may all talk about it's about outputs, you know, it's not about hours in. And we all know this intellectually. We're also very social creatures. And if you see that person at the same time every day about the coffee machine and you get to know about their life and their kids and they tell you about this cool project they're working on, they incrementally build a lot more social capital than someone who may be doing just as great work or if not better at their laptop at home. And so as we come back to the office, one of the things we've been really trying to do, again, which is why we defined how these meetings should work, is be really mindful of not knee-jerking back to bestowing social capital based on presenteeism. Yeah, very interesting, isn't it? So, you know, and something that everybody watching, I've spoken to so many MSPs who have decided not to reopen the offices, you know, and they're going purely Mm. to remote. Uh, uh, Many others are doing hybrid, you know, we've get together. So it's a challenge that we're all going to face. So uh, thank you for for the advice there. We've also got a question here from Chris on LinkedIn. He said, great session so far. So far? It's going to be great, awesome, awesome, full stop. But a quick question, Chris says, do you believe the increase in the flexibility of working locations post-COVID will be a benefit to increasing inclusion or will it push us back even further? I think that's a really interesting question. I think if you're looking to hire women as a generalisation, women tend to have more primary caring responsibilities than men. Um, And as we have an increasingly aging population as well, there is this squeeze middle of of women who are mothers to young children, but also have to care for aging relatives. And unfortunately, due to how society is structured and social expectations, this responsibility falls disproportionately on women. And by giving that flexibility and I I think perhaps that being brought into stark relief as everyone was stuck at home and suddenly school was at home there was no pick-off there was no drop-off all of the all of these aspects of our lives just merged into one and you could see it playing out behind people on their uh, zoom calls every day um it's it kind of brought into stark relief that juggle and perhaps the disproportionate load that women carried and I think it was really instructive you know, instructive for employers to really see what women juggle and how, you know, the second how the second shift blended in to what they could see on their Zoom screens. Um, now, I think, interestingly, again, what the common word I would pick out from the survey I mentioned we did at PAXA at the back end of last year for what people wanted, the top word that came out was flexibility. And it wasn't just women. What people have really appreciated from the last two years is this ability to choose, is this ability to manage their work around all of the other things they would like to achieve in their lives. And this may manifest itself in different ways. For some people who are parents of young children, they've just got the blessed relief they don't have an hour and a half of commuting every day. And that makes their lives infinitely easier. Perhaps the people who are early in career, it means they can travel more or they can pursue that side hustle or that, um, you know, that hobby that they have that maybe they're trying to um, spin something up out of. Whatever it is, it allows a much kind of richer life for people in some ways. Now, equally, on the flip side, if you're not careful, it can lead to a huge blend and a huge invasion of work, the working day, into your home life and your home space. Because I think as anyone who runs an MSP knows or works in this industry, you're never done. There's always more you can do. That's the nature of technology. You say it's constantly changing. We're always innovating. You know, it's not like you're packing, you know, biscuits into a box 
a bell doesn't go and you can't you have to stop like there's always more you could be doing um and if we don't support people to take breaks and have healthy boundaries that flexibility that was such a positive could actually um lead to things like burnout and disengagement um so it is something that we have to be incredibly mindful of and make sure that people have a balance um one of the behaviours we had for our core values at Warhive was we, we summed it up as happy to come to work, happy to go home. And right. I think making as a leader, that's one of the best things you can try and balance. Because for me, I am more worried about the person at their machine at eight o'clock at night who starts at eight in the morning than I am about the person who leaves early to go and pick their kids up. Yeah. It, I find it absolutely fascinating. I've spoken to so many business owners and if we rewind pre-COVID, uh, if we talk to business owners about remote working, there'd be many business owners, wouldn't there, Chloe, who would be like, oh, if I can't actually see the employee, I'm not sure they're getting on with work. And I always thought that was crazy, you know, because uh, as we say, well, you can you can see the results. But I've seen so many, spoken to so many MSP owners who have told me that since they've moved to the hybrid or the remote working environment, the issue is not trying to get people to do the work. Oh, no, it's the opposite. It's that the staff there, you know, uh, their members of staff are working too hard, should we say? They, the, yeah. the, the lines between home and work have blurred so much that, you know, it just becomes comfortable to retreat into work. Uh, have you observed that at all with, um, I'm not necessarily saying at PAX 8, but any of the other organizations that you've, uh, you spoke to, that people don't really know when to finish work and when to turn off their computer and go to the rest of their life. Yeah, I, I think it is possibly going to be the new pandemic when we're done with COVID, to be honest. Um, it's something we watch a lot and talk about a lot of the time as a leadership team. Um, I think there is things there are things you can do, um, but it's that balance between you know, we want to create a place where people love their work and it's just as much of a passion for them as their hobby. But equally, we want people to take breaks and be refreshed because they can't do the best work if they are overwrought. So um, having this conversation with people is absolutely key, I think. And look at them, everyone's an adult. You you can you can direct, you can point out, um, but you you cannot force um, I'm not suggesting we, I know some people talked about like shutting off emails after it's six o'clock at night and that sort of thing. Um, you know, I, I don't think that serves that flexibility that people are looking for. However, I think having the honest conversation and encouraging people who, you know, who are in your team to book appointments with themselves um, and maybe to kind of break that bad habit that a lot of us have got into is Book things that have a social obligation. So book the yoga class, sign up to five-a-side football, go and learn Spanish at the local community college twice a week. Something where you have given yourself a commitment to step away and, and break that. Um, and the other thing I would say is that as leaders, the best thing we can do is to model this behavior ourselves. Um, and I think one of... Um, my favorite quotes about leadership um, that my colleague John Griffiths uh, reminded me of is leaders leave loudly. So if you are a leader in a business and you are leaving at four o'clock to go to parents evening, or you are going to take your elderly relative to a hospital appointment, because that's what your flexible working policy allows. Don't hide it as a private appointment in your calendar. Put it there loud and proud and say to everyone, I'll be back in an hour and a half. I'm just taking Auntie Mabel to the hospital. And if you do that, you give other people permission to do that. You know, share what you're doing. And that goes back to the whole point of connection. If you want to build a community, we need to share things about ourselves, about what we do outside of work. So say, hey, you know what? I was working too late. I signed up to do Spanish twice a week. Um, I'm, you know, is anyone else want to do this? And then you can, you know, maybe three other people are doing it. Maybe then you have something else to talk about beside work. Leaders leave loudly. Wow. That Jonathan Griffiths is a smart guy, isn't he? I love that approach and sort of sharing where you are. So uh, 
Brilliant. Um, we are approaching the end of our time with Chloe. So final call on any questions you've got. If you're watching live, have got any questions on culture, on business, on leadership, for Chloe Cameron of Pack State, please leave them on social media and I will see if we can get there and ask the questions. Now, I wanted to pick up on something, uh, Chloe, that you, you sort of touched upon a little bit earlier. Would you describe yourself as an introvert or an extrovert? Ah. Uh. Uh, I would definitely say I am at the introverted end of the spectrum. Um, I think, you know, I know I talk about this to um, people in my team a lot. Um, and it's it's a really interesting topic of conversation, I think. But the definition I use for introvert is about where you get your energy from. Um, so it doesn't mean I hate people, but if I do a busy day, lots of in-person meetings or lots of Zoom calls, that drains my energy. Whereas I have lots of colleagues, uh, like my colleague James, for example, who's our CEO, who's like the polar opposite to me. He needs to be around people to thrive. Um, so in, if, if we're defining it in that way, I would define myself as an introvert. Yeah. And, and so as an introvert, have you got any tips for fellow introverts of which there are a large number in the IT industry, let's be honest here. Any tips for your fellow introverts on how to navigate the uh, the, the waters of uh, the IT industry? Um, so the first thing I say is um, manage your energy. So try and really connect with what things give you energy and what things deplete your energy and where you can try and manage your day around that as, pos uh, as best as possible. So if you know you've got a two-day training session, for example, with, you know, six people and it's all going to be face-to-face -face and there's a lot of talking and interpersonal interaction. You no, know, make sure you get a really good night's sleep. Make sure that you're looking after yourself. Put your out-of-office on, kind of set your expectations. Give yourself space in the break to be away from people. Um, and I think if you can, if you feel comfortable maybe have this conversation with your team. So when you're you're planning different types of work, um, just can you say, you know what, I've done three days of client meetings this week. I really just need a day at home to yeah. A, get back on track with everything that's built up, but just to recharge my batteries. Um, and I think it does feel like to me that we are all talking about these things a lot more and we are able to share our needs a little bit more and I think that's really empowering if you can create a culture where that is okay I think you'll learn a lot and get a lot out of your team yeah I've been really warmed to see as an industry you know and as a society as a whole one thing that we have been talking much more about is mental health mental health awareness I was intrigued I saw I believe it's on your LinkedIn feed recently uh, that you completed a mental health first aid course Chloe tell yeah. us more about that and tell us about mental health awareness in not just this industry but society as a whole how do you think we can we can help people be more open about mental health the mental health first aid course was probably two of the most rewarding but difficult days i've spent learning something new and it saddened and still surprised me the level of stigma that still exists in society yeah. around mental health. Um, and the biggest lesson I took away from that course um, was that the best thing we could do is talk about it and try and break the stigma. Because if you can break the stigma, people will raise their hand if they're struggling or if they need help. And if, if someone gives you an in that you can start to provide some useful support and signpost them to the professionals who can really help them, we can do a lot of good in terms of nipping mental health crises in the bud or making sure people get the help they need. The sad fact is in the UK, and obviously this may differ for our international audiences, but our mental health services are chronically underfunded, especially since the pandemic. And it is incredibly challenging to get an appointment, e even if you are a child, and you, you know, this this can really define your life. Like it's two year waiting sometimes to get seen by a specialist, which in life for a child is a huge amount of time. Um, so actually, as you know, as an employer, just as you would, you know, 
be very concerned if someone walked in with a gaping wound. We have people walking around who have that for a mental health stake. And, you know, we need to look and help them and get them the professional help they need. Um, We can also work as employers as well to try and create an environment, not only where we could talk about this, but where we support recovery time, where we support um, making adjustments for people who may need them if they're struggling. You know, we have all of this technology at our fingertips. So, you know what, if someone is um, really struggling, don't make them come in three days a week. Talk to them about how we can use remote working. Or equally, if remote working is great, meaning someone's really withdrawn, talk about how we can help foster meaningful connections if that is something that supports people. Um, You know, the the biggest thing I learned is that there are some incredibly skilled professionals out there. And just like physical first aid, the job of the mental health first aider is to get people to the right level of help. So it's, it's not that suddenly we can fix everyone's challenges for them. But going back to empathy, if we reduce the stigma and we can do the hard thing of seeing someone who's in pain and jumping down into that pit with them and say, this must be really hard. I'm really sorry. It's hard. I'm here for you. We can do a lot of good. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, I've, one of the areas Uh, I've been fairly open and honest about my own mental health challenges. And one of the areas that is my happy place to go to, as uh, people can see, is reading books. Mm -hmm. Now, you've described yourself, Chloe, as uh, an unashamed uh, book nerd who loves uh, loves living and working in the digital world. What are the books that have had the biggest influence on you? Oh, gosh. Okay, that's a whole separate podcast, Richard. Like, <laughs> we do not have time. We do not have Give time. Give us one that. recently, perhaps, us, that you've okay. read that's had a big influence. Um, well, actually, um, the book um, that I'm working through at the moment is on the back of an incredible leadership offsite we did last week. And it's called The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. Um, okay. And I want to give a shout out to Sinead in the people org at Pax A who organized this with the amazing Ronan Harrington. And that book has really transformed how I think about leadership. It has this very core model in it, which is a very simple model. As a leader, you're either below the line or above the line. Now, the natural human thing is to be below the line, to worry about ego, to worry about being right, how are we perceived? The trick, if we can pull it off, is to get above the line as much as possible. Um, And that paradigm that it offers, um, I think it allows us to accept our humanity and our flaws, and it gives us models to help rise above it, which I think if we talk about the mental health aspect as well, you know, I think sometimes these models make us feel bad if we can't achieve them or they're a little bit unrealistic. Whereas this book that I'm reading, The 15 Commitments, um, it acknowledges it's not a linear journey and that a lot of the time we fall short, but it's the trying and it's the habit building that's really important. Wow. Well, check that one out. Chloe, this has been an incredible conversation uh, one of my favorite ever conversations i'm going to say that openly now normally i pride myself on being able to make sure that we ask i ask of our guests uh, all of the questions that have been asked on social media i'm afraid for everybody who's asked brilliant questions on social media today it's just not been possible because there have been so many really good quality questions asked so chloe i'll put you on the spot here again for the second time this show a little bit unfair We've got so many other things that I wanted to talk to you about, so many great questions from the audience. Would you do us the honour of uh, coming back and perhaps we can record another episode where we can explore some of those questions? I'd love to, Richard. That would be fun. The hour's flown by, so um, I would love to do that. Absolutely has. Now, for anybody who can't wait for that, Chloe, and uh, perhaps wants to continue the conversation with you in the interim, uh, what's the best place for them to reach you online? Oh, LinkedIn is probably the best place for me. Yeah. Um, Connect with me on LinkedIn. And uh, if you can't wait to have your question answered, I will do my best. (laughs) Thank you, Chloe. It has been an absolute pleasure uh, for speaking to you. I'm afraid that's all the time we've got for on this episode of Tub Talk Live. I want to give a big shout out to our partners, the team at Fresh Productions, who made 
this episode uh, possible. Matt, who is behind the scenes there, Ben, Richard, and the team. Uh, if you are in uh, a technology, if you're in a technology business and you're looking to put together either a hybrid event, in-person event, or even a webinar, something of that nature, get in touch with uh, Ben and the team at Fresh Productions. They are doing incredible work and will help make your event great. Thanks again to our guest today, Chloe Cameron of PAX8, um, and for you at home for joining us. That's all the time we've got for, for this month, but I'll look forward to seeing you next month on Tub Talk Live. Cheers for now. Hey folks, Richard here. Thanks for listening today. I know you've got a ton of options for who you listen to nowadays, so I really appreciate your support. Do you have any feedback on this episode? Ideas for future guests? Tweet me at Tublog using the hashtag TubTalk. I respond to every tweet and really appreciate your feedback. 